Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Today's episode is a conversation with Melanie Polkowski, who's a UX psychologist with a PhD in cognitive psychology and a long history in tech. After Melanie left a 13-year career at IBM, she wrote a book called Uncovering Truffles, which is a book about the scarcity and value of women in STEM. And something that she wrote about in her book stood out to me as being really relevant to many people in UX across genders. In researching her book, Melanie found that certain cognitive styles can make it more difficult to get ahead in tech and leadership, and that contributes to holding many women back in STEM fields. And here's the interesting connection to UX. Thinking styles that are more thoughtful, observational, perhaps more empathetic, the people with these cognitive styles can have a a hard time fitting into tech teams and in leadership roles especially. And ironically, these cognitive styles, largely intuitive, an interest in people and behavior, and highly empathetic, these are common denominators in the discipline of UX. So that's what we're digging into today. Now, what can someone do if they find themselves in this place, a place where they feel like they don't fit in or they feel undervalued or misunderstood? Fortunately for us, Melanie has great experience and some great advice. I also want to mention that Melanie has given us a couple of books to give away to our listeners. So if you would like your own copy of Uncovering Truffles to discover tools and inspiration so that you can design an engaging and meaningful career, just follow UX Cake on Twitter or Facebook and comment on our post with hashtag women in STEM. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake. Hi, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And you and I were just talking about your book that's about women in STEM and how what you found through doing this research shows that it's not so much a gender diversity problem as it is a, a cognitive diversity issue that we have. And I'd like you to just start out with telling us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I guess, you know, just sort of to give a little bit of context, what really got me interested in the whole topic of women in STEM and particularly tech was my own experiences in the field. And so partly as a way to understand my own experience and just really answer the question, like, is there something wrong with me? I started doing research on the book and it, it kind of had been a, a little bit of like an ongoing dabbling for quite a few years. Um, I had the book in my mind for about 10 years before I actually sort of arrived at a place where I had the space to really sit down and focus on it and write it. And so as I started doing the research, what I realized was that the issue that I felt was impacting me the most was not so much the fact I was a woman, but it was the fact that I was more of a cognitive style, a communication style, and a personality style that is 
grossly underrepresented in tech. And so there's, you know, some supporting literature for that, along with the idea that we tend to sort of shorthand diversity by the most obvious characteristics of people, you know, their race, their gender being two major ones. But in fact, it's not so much those issues necessarily that contribute to you know, the, the problem of diversity, and you don't just necessarily fix it by hiring more women, for example, because that's not necessarily going to get you the cognitive diversity that would actually make an organization stronger. And so let's talk about that a little bit more, because unlike other areas in STEM, where you see the interest of girls really dropping off dramatically in education, like math and, and science, in UX, like when I teach and when I speak and go to conferences, it seems like there's at least close to half, if not half or more of the audience that are women. And speaking from experience, when we would screen interns at Amazon for UX specifically, about half or more of the applicants were always women. And it wasn't difficult to have parity between the genders in the UX intern program there. But when you look at who is in leadership in UX at that company and in this industry in general, the further up the ladder you go, the more male predominant it is. So so let's talk about that a little bit more. If it isn't purely gender, what else is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot, as I said, you know, to do with things like cognitive and communication styles. So it's, you know, how you engage in conflict, how you engage in negotiation, your assertiveness or lack thereof. You know, I think all of these things are the behavioral issues that have the dominant role to play. And it's really easy for us to attribute all of those things to, oh, well, she's a woman, so she lacks a, a assertive style. She's not really into conflict. You know, she tends to not interrupt. And I think all of those things are true. But attributing it just to gender is too simple, right? Because there are plenty of men, I think, you know, that also have those characteristics and they also have trouble getting into leadership. So when you think about leadership, it really is dominated by people who are rapid decision makers who have been reinforced for the fact that they have a great deal of confidence in their own decision-making and they tend to have a much more dominating communication style. You made another point earlier when we were talking about this, that you made a correlation between that style of communication, of interest, of empathy, or that cognitive style and the UX discipline itself. Right. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think what you see in UX, and if you think about sort of the fields that people come from in, in UX, you know, they tend to be fields that are much more, you know, the behavioral sciences, design, art, you know, architecture. You can name a lot of different fields, but in general, what tends to unite most of the of the, you know, kind of course of people who find their way into UX eventually 
is that they do have sort of this common denominator of being largely intuitive, interested in people, having a great deal of empathy, and they also tend to not really think along traditional discipline lines, right? You know, so when you think about going to college, you think about, well, I'm in, you know, X major or X department, and this is the way we do things. And so I think, you know, and I would certainly include myself in this bucket, you know, what you tend to hear from a lot of people in UX field is, well, I've changed majors, you know, from like one one thing to something wildly different, or I've dabbled in a lot of different fields, right? And so there isn't just, when you sort of think about that as someone's path, what that suggests is that their learning style is not bounded by the sort of arbitrary boundaries we put on learning in academia, right? They tend to bridge those divides and people just kind of follow their interests. And and I think one of the things that really is attractive about UX for a lot of people is that it is a way to combine a lot of different interests and skill sets in a very unique way. And then there is that potential to do just about anything in any field, right? And have it be, and have your skills be applicable. So I think that by itself tends to sort of draw people that are really looking for something different, but, but it's also a, an effect of the fact that they think differently and they're not just willing to kind of go, there's one answer or there's one path that makes sense. So I feel like we've established that it's not only women and it's not all women in UX. Right. Let's talk about some of the things that make it difficult for anyone with these cognitive differences. What are some of the issues that you talk about seeing in your book? Yeah. So there was a, I came across a statistic that I thought was incredibly alarming and probably the the single biggest takeaway for me as I was doing the research for the book, and it was that 52% of women are essentially leaving the STEM fields by the time they hit, say, their early 30s. And most often it's attributed to a lack of support, right? And the sort of death by a thousand cuts, right? It's the daily sort of micro slights that happen when you're in a environment that doesn't necessarily respect your ideas or your, your ways of thinking. And it's just kind of the very subtle, but over time, collectively painful and discouraging behaviors around you, you know, going back again to some of the things I mentioned earlier, like how conflict occurs, right? So if you take a bunch of, you know, men, often engineers, if you're in tech and you put them together in a room to negotiate, you know, a feature build or a timeline or something like that, they're way of negotiating different points of view for a lot of women is very alarming and off-putting. And that's one of the things that over time can build up and just make it feel like a very toxic environment. The other thing that tends to have a lot of effect is 
being excluded. And I think I hear this a lot from people in UX that they just don't feel like they have a seat at the table or that their contributions are valued in the same way. And, you know, I hear that from both genders as well. And so it's, I think, has to do with how we communicate and the sort of level of evidence we need to provide in order to just be heard on a day-to-day basis. And at least for women in the STEM fields, that has just a, a very damaging impact on their longevity. One thing that that made me think about is I feel like it can be easy for women to think that these issues happen to everyone, you know, like uh, not being asked for your opinion or not being heard or listened to or being kind of disrespected in meetings. And um, for sure, it happens in UX in general, but it does happen more often to women. And it, it seems it ends up feeling like uh, just an additional erosion, I think, maybe to a woman's self-confidence that it's it's her problem. It's not a gender problem. It's it's right. just it's right. her, right? It's, right? it's herself. <laughs> and somehow she needs to work on herself and work on self-improvement. And, you know, like by focusing so much on self-improvement, then you and those who are supposed to be supporting you and your development at work aren't focusing on improving your strengths. And, and I wonder if those things, it's, it's kind of a lot in there maybe, but it feels like that might be part of the problem possibly holding women back as well. Yeah. You know, I think for, for me, you know, and I've heard all that advice, right. Um, just be more assertive and just speak up in meetings and just, you know, value the fact that you're there. And, you know, particularly when you've been in an environment for years that doesn't appear to value you, it's really difficult to just go, well, you know, if I just speak a little louder, right. Or there's gotta be something that I can do in order to change this situation. And, you know, for me in, in the tech field, that's something I have struggled with my whole career. Um, when I first joined a technology company, I came to it from, you know, very female dominated fields, education, clinical speech language pathology are extremely dominated by women. So I went to basically the polar opposite kind of environment. And, you know, I would say my dominant reaction to that environment was I've got to change something about me. There's something wrong with me. And I spent lots and lots of years and lots and lots of painful, painful days trying to figure out what was the key that would make me feel whole in that environment. And I guess now that I, you know, I'm much older (laughs) and, um, have been in a lot more environments I do kind of now, I would say for myself, look at it in sort of a multi-pronged way. You know, part of it is what kind of support do I have understanding that I am kind of dealing with death by a thousand cuts on any given day, right? So there is certainly a component 
where I can look at my own behaviors and how is that manifesting what's happening around me and how people are responding to me. How am I showing up in that environment, right? I think there's a difference between looking at it as a weakness and looking at it as, you know, what is functioning well, what about my behavior is functioning well in this environment and what about my behavior is just making me toxic in this environment, right? Then I think it's, you know, also kind of stepping back and looking at the environment itself. And one of the questions that for many years I was really afraid to ask is, is, is this just not a good environment for me? Right. Am I not able to detach emotionally enough from the interactions I'm having in order to be functional and productive and happy? And I think that's a really critical question. And in some cases, the answer is going to be, no, I, I, I just can't detach enough from this, this environment, and I need to find a better one. So I think, you know, now the way I would look at it is, you know, there are multiple kind of components. Some of my own behaviors I might want to change just because it would make me more flexible and successful in a broader variety of situations. And so the, those things I can choose to change. Some things I don't want to change about myself. You know, like for me personally, I think one of my strengths, but in a lot of environments, also weakness is the fact that I am extremely observant. And when I go into a new situation, I like to hang back observe, sort of get the lay of the land, understand what's happening in the room, sort of, you know, where the power centers are and, and what the dynamics are before I would ever start contributing. Now I could look at that as a major weakness and certainly it's very counter to the communicative style of, you know, leaders, especially like in the U S but on the other hand, over time evolved that to see that as a major strength and a, a major source of my power. And so that's something that I've chosen not to change about myself, even though I know that it's probably a major component of why some people wouldn't see me as a leader. You know, when you left IBM in your book, you said something that resonated with me <laughs> as well, um, that I thought, for a long time, actually, after I left Amazon three years ago, you, you said to yourself, should I have quit? What the hell have I done? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that self, that, that questioning, that self doubt, is there, you know, could I have done something more or was this really not a good place? And I don't know that you'll ever necessarily have that answer, but for other people who are, are wondering, do, can I make this environment work for me? Or should I go find a different place that works better for me and my communication style? Or, you know, uh, someplace that's going to value what I have to offer. And I want to come up with some strategies for those people who are in that spot, because there are a lot of people in that place. Yeah, for sure. And I would say, you know, the people that I coach and mentor, you know, this is often the topic right? I'm in a job. I'm unhappy. I don't feel valued and I don't feel like I'm learning and growing. And so, you know, in, 
part of it, I mean, I guess I would respond to it in a lot of different ways, right? As the person who is experiencing all of that, right? For me, one of the questions that has really helped me get clarity on like the should I stay or should I go question is can, it's really that sort of, and this is actually a phrase that I learned when I was in coaching school, um, detached involvement. That really, that phrase really resonates for me, right? Because it's, can I be detached, but yet involved or, or taking it further engaged, right? And I think at some level that can be a really happy state of being for a lot of us who tend to be more emotional and intuitive and sensitive to some of these interpersonal issues, right? Because as soon as you're so emotionally involved and, and under stress, you are not able to be as productive, as happy, as energetic as you would be if you felt emotionally kind of neutral or even on the positive side of the fence. And so in thinking about that myself, one of the questions, or or even when I'm coaching people, you know, one of the questions I'm, I'm like really sort of thinking through in my head. And as I think back on my own experience, it's like how emotionally reactive was I at various moments, because those are the moments where I was least able to see a way out, least able to change my perspective, least able to feel a sense of hope and well-being, and least aware of the value that I bring. So kind of to what extent detached involvement can you, can you achieve that or can I achieve that in this moment? Right. And that could be achieved potentially with some help. So, you know, and this is actually one of the things that causes women to leave is uh, the, the fields altogether is the lack of mentorship, not being able to find mentors or support systems internally. Right. And you say internally, is it important that it's that it's at the company uh, at which you are at? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, you know, mo- I think a lot of companies, especially larger companies, will advocate for, you know, or have mentorship programs, particularly for women or, or any kind of underrepresented group. Those things can all be great, right? And they can be really helpful. If the goal of, of your a relationship is... I need a person to help me get ahead. That's a sponsor, right? That's someone who is within your company, who does have the power to move your career along. And so, you know, what I think a lot of, you know, particularly younger employees find confusing is that sort of distinction. They have the idea that a mentor will sort of move your career along when that's actually not their function. That's what a sponsor does. Let's talk a little bit more about sponsorship, because in your book, you talk about the importance of sponsorship. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. obviously, sponsorship doesn't need to only come from other women. Right. And it absolutely does not have to come from UX leaders. Right. It just needs to come from leaders 
at your company. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How do people go about finding something like that? Yeah, I think that can be really challenging, right? And, you know, in some cases, it's not even about finding them. It's about them finding you, right? So like when I think back on my own career, the people who have behaved as sponsors toward me, it was not because of anything I overtly asked them to do in most cases, right? In some cases it was that that type of relationship and they, you know, knew something about me or knew something that was happening at the time and they were able to kind of help me along to help me into another role or give me an assignment that they thought would be good for me or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I would say that sponsors are anyone that um, can give you opportunity, right? So in that sense, it doesn't even have to be a leader necessarily. It could be a peer who is giving you the opportunity to talk to someone you might've known other, might not have known otherwise. Right. You know, I'm thinking about various people that I know, um, you know, situations where someone says, I'll introduce you to X or you should call or, or, you know, have, coffee with so-and-so recently I gave a friend an opportunity to speak to a leader at a company that I knew and just made that introduction. And she is turning that into a potential job opportunity, right? So even those things, I think you can look at as a sponsorship situation and the challenge with them, particularly when you're identifying a leader as someone, as a potential sponsor, right, is that going to them and saying, will you help me get this promotion or will you help me get a role on your team? Yeah, sometimes that's very appropriate, right? And if you have that sort of established relationship with that person, and they know you at kind of a more personal level or have experience with you in a work environment, then yeah, absolutely. That can be appropriate in a lot of cases though. And this is something that I didn't fully understand at IBM until really the end of my tenure there is that there are a lot of people, especially if you're in a big company who are working potentially behind the scenes to your benefit, to give you opportunities you might not have had otherwise. Right. And so when I think back on, you know, assignments I got or things that just kind of popped out of the blue or people who saw potential in me to do something different, you know, those weren't necessarily in my management line at all. Um, they were people who were in wildly different parts of the organization. One of my best experiences was being in um, IBM's Smarter Cities Challenge, which is kind of a leadership training opportunity and whatever. The opportunity for me to be in that was from a friend that worked in HR. We had never really interacted at all, but I just found her very very good to talk to, just very, very wise. And she, we had sort of a little bit of a mentoring relationship and I had no expectations of that relationship other than I really enjoyed talking to her and I felt much more peaceful after talking to her. And, you know, I later found out that she was instrumental in pulling the right strings to 
you know, get someone to pay attention so that I ultimately got that Smarter Cities Challenge opportunity because she thought I would be great at it. Yeah, I'm hearing like threads of consistency in needing to have this established relationship. And I think a lot of folks don't, they're very uncomfortable with getting to know people that, <laughs> uh, or finding ways to be seen. That's another thing that can help if you're involved in things outside just your day-to-day -day work. That's another great way to be seen, to get to know other people. Right. But don't you think too, I mean, you know, it's really caring about what you do, right. And doing it well. Right. So that I think is foundational, right? If you struggle to do the basic job you're doing, right. Then probably what we're talking about is not going to be the first line of that you go to, to try to get other opportunities, right? You have to have just foundational competency at the job that role that you are in. Right. And you need to be getting support. You know, you need to be set up for success in your, your own role. So I right. guess that is definitely another issue that a lot of people struggle with on a regular basis is they aren't set up for success and they are struggling, even though they may be more than proficient at their job. Yes, that's true. And I think that's sort of a second level, right? So I think what, so once you're not talking about like a basic competency issue anymore, then, you know, in my head, the next thing we look at is, okay, from a communication perspective, perspective, how are you showing up essentially, right? How are you showing up in your communication with others? And I sort of view this as, you know, not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, and I think this is a really cynical view. You know, like you have to communicate with manager, you have to just sort of manage up kind of thing, right? We tend to talk sort of, what's the word, condemningly, I guess, of people who just are kind of tooting their own horn all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like just being very open with your communication and making sure that people understand who you are, what you're contributing and what they can expect of you. So, you know, in, in my mind, like all the stuff you hear about, like sort of establishing your brand is kind of this way. Like, you know, for me, one of my highest values is integrity that I say, I do what I say I'm going to do. And I'm very, very reliable. And so that is, you know, from the beginning, part of what I did to establish who I am. You know, the other thing that I've, I've definitely gotten better at as I've gotten more experienced is I never want to surprise people with anything. And I think that was very counter to how I started my career. Like, I think when I started my career in tech, it was much more like, I kind of wanted to hold things close to my chest and I didn't want, I was really concerned about people sort of, you know, taking credit for my idea or, um, which does happen a lot. <laughs> yeah, it totally happens. It totally happens. Right. And it certainly happened to me too. On the other hand, right? If you're a person with a lot of good ideas, whatever your idea of the moment is, is not going to be your last one. So the clearer you are on what you value and what your contributions are, the better you can communicate to people proactively being proactive in my communication. I've sort of gotten over the idea that 
it's going to lead to people stealing my ideas, right? I don't feel as vulnerable and defensive as I was, which is kind of a good thing. So we have to wind this down and I feel like we have a whole nother episode, (laughs) a follow-up episode that we can talk about how people who have this cognitive diversity specifically, and also for the, the leaders and of the team and the team members who want cognitive diversity, you know, how to support that. Cause I feel like we really just scratched the surface there. And so there's definitely a part two of this coming up. (laughs) Yeah, that could be fun. Uh, so you wrote your book about women in STEM, uh, after you had left a 13 year career at IBM and I'm wondering, knowing what you know now, what advice would you want to give your younger aspirational self about moving forward in your career? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I actually think it's related to what we've talked about already. One of the things I would tell my younger self is the pace that I had operated under as a good student is not sustainable in business. Mm. And oh, that's, that's gotta be hard though, because yeah. in many places it's expected. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But I even think like, even in places, you know, like you take your average Silicon Valley or big company where a, a pace is expected. I'm not saying like go from, you know, 150 to zero, I'm just saying, you know, 120 can be adequate. Right. And so I think that, and sometimes a hundred. Yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, depending on what's happening in other areas of your life, there's going to be more of an ebb and flow. And I think, I think what a lot of young people, particularly people who are very good students, right. Come into the work world with is they have been very successful by running a sprint and then having a break and running a sprint and having a break. Right. And they don't even recognize sort of the pacing of how they've conducted their kind of work life and everything up till that point. And so when you enter the work world in that same pace and your organization also supports, Mm -hmm. this is a sprint all the time, you know, that is not going to be sustainable for people who are empathetic and observers and listeners and people who are constantly getting the nuances around everything that's happening. Right. Cause there's just processing time that's needed for that. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that I would tell my younger self is that it's really okay to kind of go, yeah, I guess that, you know, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier of like, it's okay to kind of ask yourself, what is it about me? You know, so I, you know, like not so much what's wrong with me. I I think that's definitely the wrong question and it's very punitive, but what is it about me that is contributing to what I'm experiencing in my career? And then taking that a step further and going, you know, what is it that I want or I value to what extent am I able to use 
my own values in this job or in this organization or whatever it is. And then I think allowing for a range of possibilities there, you know, for a lot of people, even people like coach, the possibility that this environment isn't great for me personally, especially when it's got a big giant name and you like the prestige of that name, I think can, is where a lot of just badness comes in, right? Is you get so enamored of saying, I work at, you know, whatever the household name company is that you lose the forest for the trees, which is, yeah, but you're not happy and you don't like what you do and it's impacting the whole rest of your life and potentially your health. And so I think I would have, I would have given myself the confidence for that to be an okay response long before I reaped the consequences of my decisions to stay, Hmm. no matter what it was inducing in me personally. Yeah. That feeling that I, I can't leave. I don't, I don't want to feel like a quitter. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) it. And there's nothing else out there for me. And how else would I use my skills and all of those other things that are wrapped up in it? I wish that we could just keep talking and talking. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I've already written down. We're having a part two. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Melanie, it's been so awesome. Before I let you go, how can people connect or follow you, hear more what you have to say online? Well, I guess I'm sort of on the standard places. So I have, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I also am on Quora and on Quora, I actually have a little bit of a following um, because I tend to answer a lot of UX questions on there. And I run a space that's called early career UX. What I like is People ask me lots of questions on Quora, particularly about UX, and I tend to use them like writing prompts, and I write lots of answers. So that's probably the, the social media I'm most active on. Oh, excellent. And we will follow up with Link that in in our notes as well. I got to thank you so much. This has been so, so interesting. And I know it's going to be really helpful to a lot, a lot of people out there. So uh, thank you so much, Melanie. And it was really great talking with you. Oh, yeah, it was great to talk to you too. And thank you so much for the for the opportunity. I hope it is helpful for the audience. This was a great discussion on what we can do if we find ourselves in this place. I really would like to have a part two of this. What I'd like to talk more about is what can we do as peers, as leaders, as future leaders to break the mold that makes it so difficult for diverse cognitive styles in tech. I would love to hear from any others who would like to hear more of this. That helps us gauge interest in topics that you want to hear. And as I mentioned before, we're giving away a couple of copies of Melanie's book, physical copies that will be mailed to you. And it's easy 
follow UX Cake on Twitter or Facebook and comment on our post with hashtag women in STEM. You'll get tools and inspiration for your career. You can find links to Melanie's book and to connect with her on the show notes page at uxcake.co. And as always, thanks for listening. And we would love to hear any feedback or comments. Connect with us at uxcake.co or Twitter or Facebook. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.